Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the vote of petty vengeance today in the House to remove Congresswoman Ilan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee where she was an important voice who asked uncomfortable and probing questions about our foreign policy. This overshadowed the damning remark by Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the press conference following the vote that the Republicans are continuing their extortion and legislative terrorism over the debt ceiling, threatening to crash the US and global economy unless they get their way on budget cuts. Joining us is Thomas Kahn, who is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role on a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. Then we'll look into the EU leaders gathering in Ukraine for talks with their Ukrainian counterparts over EU membership and recent efforts by President Zelensky to clean up corruption by firing a number of officials, including an oligarch who backed Zelensky's rise to power. Joining us is Luke Cooper, an Associate Professorial Research Fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He is the Director of Peace Rep's Ukraine Program and previously was a Visiting Fellow on the Europe's Future Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, and he runs Another Europe is Possible podcast with Zoe Williams of The Guardian. The author of Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy, we will discuss his article at the American Prospect, Ukraine's Neoliberal War Mobilization, Low Taxes, Privatization and Paired Back Labor Protections Could Undermine Ukraine's Fight Against Russian Aggression. Then finally we'll examine the deal struck by Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin and President Bongwong Marcos of the Philippines for what the US is calling spaces, not bases, on a number of islands including Cagayan, the northernmost 90 miles from Taiwan. Joining us is June Dreyer, a professor of political science at the University of Miami specialising in international relations, Asian-Pacific political and economic systems, Chinese government and foreign policy, and US defence policy. She was the Asia advisor to the Chief of Naval Operations and is the author of China's Political System, Modernization and Tradition. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now from Mombasa, Kenya, is Thomas Khan, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including the Simpsons-Bowles, the Biden talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University and a partner at the Cormac Group. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Kahn. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for calling. Well, thanks for for joining us from Africa. And uh, the connections are a bit shaky, but today there was a, a dramatic vote on the House floor where they stripped Congresswoman Ilan Omar of her seat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is largely seen as retribution. But the most important statement that came from the from Kevin McCarthy's press conference after the vote was on the debt ceiling and whether or not after the talks that he had with Biden in the White House yesterday that the Republicans would still hold the debt ceiling hostage in order to extort budget cuts. And basically McCarthy said, yeah, we're going to do that. So we're not yeah. any better off, it seems. Uh, nothing was done in the, in the talks that indicate that this kind of legislative terrorism is going to stop. Yes. Well, look, it, it, it is beyond unfathomable. It, it is so dangerous to think that the debt ceiling can be used as a political football. I mean, um, the consequences of, of default are so um, so unfathomable, so so dramatic, so extraordinary. Um, not just uh, on our economy, but on the world economy, the world markets, and on our on 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 the, the, the markets here, um, on Social Security checks, Medicare, uh, veterans benefits, farm payments, um, every single uh, responsibilities that the federal government has would be under jeopardy. I remember when I was at the budget committee in 2011 and we came about as close to crossing the debt ceiling as, as one can possibly do without uh, in fact going into default. And I remember getting phone calls and uh, texts, letters from veterans saying, are my checks going to stop? And from seniors calling and saying, are my social security checks going to continue? I mean, and it, they were all legitimate questions. The answer was, we don't know, because it's never happened before. But if we actually go into default, then all federal payments are, um, are endowed. And, uh, and ultimately, it is really up to the federal government to decide what it can pay and what it can't. Um, and um, so um, it's never happened before for good reason. Uh, the full faith and credit of the United States has always been um, uh, as, as good as gold, beyond good as gold. Um, you know, another thing that would be in, in, in grave jeopardy are interest rates in this country, because uh, investors could no longer be certain that bu- buying U.S. bonds were secure and were safe and that they would get their payments on time. And so that would shoot up interest rates for mortgages, for credit cards, for car loans, um, and, um, and, and that would be a, a terrible hit on the consumer 
you know, we are sort of, we don't think we're in a recession, or maybe we are, but we're pretty darn close. If we were actually to to cross into uh, default, uh, the chances of going into a recession would would significantly magnify. So I think the notion of, I'm sorry for this rather long answer, but it's such an important question. Uh, the, the idea of playing uh, pl- playing uh, the dead ceiling like a political football is just so irresponsible. Well, the fact that he's he hasn't said that we're not going to do it anymore after having met exactly. with Biden yesterday creates uncertainty, doesn't it, in the global markets? It's still... Absolutely. It's like Absolutely. a guy standing in a tank of gasoline with a matchbox yes. and, say, and threatening to strike a match. Yes. yes, that's exactly right. Well, by his comments, essentially saying, if Republicans don't get what we want, then we will go into default. And so he is making a very credible threat. Um, and frankly, we have to take him at his word. We have to take him very seriously. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's it's quite stunning when you think about this. I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable that in 2023, anybody could could use the um, full faith and credit of the United States, you know, ironically enough, especially Republicans, um, that at least historically were the investor class. Uh, and the idea that... Uh, they would um, cast doubt forever on the credibility um, of the of the creditworthiness of the U.S. government is is just is just um, frankly it's just hard to imagine. Um, and you know, unfortunately, you know, McCarthy is in such a um, politically well. Let me take a step back. I mean, in 2011, uh, Republicans obviously were very very conservative, in many ways more conservative than John Boehner. Um, and we came about as close as we, closer than we we ever should have. Um, but this new group of Republicans is far more to the right than the old group. And moreover, we're dealing with a much weaker and less experienced speaker in Kevin McCarthy, who is barely clinging on to his uh, to his position as speaker, and he's depending for power. Um, on a group of 10 or 20 people who um, the Freedom Caucus and and people even to the right of that, um, the Matt Gates, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Um, and so he's really not his own master. And I think in reality, any kind of agreement that possibly Democrats would accept um, and it's hard to imagine that um, if it actually went to the floor of the House and passed, it would probably be end, the end of Kevin McCarthy's speakership anyway. So there, there's a lot going on here. Well, what I find extraordinary is that the, all the coverage is on stripping Congresswoman Ilan Omar of her seat Omar. on that. And frankly, that is... a, yeah. a terrible thing that they've done because they're losing a really important voice on foreign affairs because she asks uncomfortable questions which are necessary she's a really valuable person and you know they're obviously trying to make it sound like she's a anti-semite and all this stuff uh, for which she's apologized uh, for as if the people (laughs) attacking her are the ones that 
uh, support the insurrection against the you know the United States government itself. Right. So it's, hypocrisy right. here is extraordinary. But right. the fact that McCarthy has not basically said that we're not going to do this crazy thing is really troubling. And you know the Democrats were saying earlier that oh he's going to you know go after Social Security and Medicare, and then he turns around and says no I'm not going to go after Social Security and Medicare. Yes. So what? Did he talk to Biden about what are they going to cut? I mean, what do they want to cut if they're not going to go after Social Security and Medicare at the same time they still want to use this uh, debt ceiling threat as a method of extortion? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it's ironic because they they claim they care about the deficit, um, but entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security are are fast-growing parts of the budget along with, like, debt service. Um, so they pay lip service to this claim about uh, fiscal conservatism. So you ask what what's left? Um, well, one mandatory spending program that I'm sure they'll have no compunctions about cutting, which is Medicaid. Well, Medicaid is health insurance for the poor. And um, that is really inhumane to cut because when you're cutting health insurance for the poor, in, in many cases, in a large proportion, the people who are covered by Medicaid are, are children and the elderly. And so you're, you're, you're cutting, cutting assistance from people who are just uh, barely surviving. Um, aside from that, um, they would be cutting discretionary spending. And that is only one-third of the budget is discretionary spending. It, it's divided not exactly evenly between defense and non-defense defense is, is somewhat larger. Um, it, again, it's kind of ironic. They say they want to go back to the 2022 level. Um, uh, we're now in fiscal 2023. Uh, and that would be a significant cut to discretionary spending. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox that they're willing to cut. They say they're not taking defense off the table. Although it's really hard to know what they are taking off the table in any case. But, um, um, you know, we're, we're for all practical purposes in a proxy war with Russia right now, and we are sending military assistance to Ukraine, and um, Republicans are talking a very good game about a stronger defense. At the same time, they now want to cut defense. Well, what's left in the non-defense, so that, that's half of discretionary spending. The other half is all the programs ranging from education environmental protection, highways, mass transit, um, nutrition programs, you know, everything, so the operation of the federal government, uh, everything that one thinks of, when one thinks of the operation of the federal government other than mandatory spending, that's that's non-defense discretionary spending. That really keeps the government open. And um, non-defense discretionary spending has already been badly squeezed. and now they're talking about making significant cuts. You know, it, it's going to be very interesting um, because I think they're talking about spending cuts that even many of their own members would have trouble uh, passing, which actually, or I should say voting for, which actually goes back to a, a broader topic. And the White House, I think, has been quite wise in saying, well, if you really want to make all of these cuts, show us your budget. Right. You know, it's fine to speak in generalities, about wanting to show me the money, <laughs> uh, uh, the deficit, 
Well, show us exactly. Show us your plan. Right. You know, the president is, is about to put out a, a several thousand page uh, uh, budget with programs down to the millions of dollars, and that's his budget. Okay, now show us what yours is. You know, McCarthy right. says he wants to sit down and negotiate. Well, terrific. The way you negotiate is tell us your plan. We'll tell us what our plan is, and then let's see if we can find something in the middle. But you know. Of course, he can't do that, and he won't do that. Right. Well, Thomas Count, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, it, it's good. this is going to be an ongoing battle. I think that we're going to continue to be discussing this well into June. Okay. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas okay. Count, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he's a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University and a partner at the Cormac Group. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into EU leaders gathering in Kiev for talks with their Ukrainian counterparts over EU membership and recent efforts by President Zelensky to clean up corruption. Inflation's getting higher, makes it hard on the buyer. Unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lines. Rent being paid late, please. Let the dollar circulate, let the dollar circulate. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Luke Cooper, an Associate Professional Research Fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Director of Peace Reps Ukraine Program, previously a visiting fellow on the European Futures Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He runs the Another Europe is Possible podcast with Zoe Williams of The Guardian, and is the author of Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy. He also has an article at the American Prospect, Ukraine's Neoliberal War Mobilization, Low Taxes, Privatization, and Paired Back Labor Protections Could Undermine Ukraine's Fight Against Russian Aggression. Welcome to Background Briefing, Luke Cooper. Hi, good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a meeting uh, tomorrow, Friday, in Ukraine of top EU officials, Ursula von Leyen, uh, Joseph Borrell. And just ahead of uh, this meeting, Zelensky has fired a Kiev tax collector and also a deputy defense minister. And also he's gone after this businessman, Igor Kolomoisky, who has a media empire, which actually promoted the uh, candidacy of uh, Zelensky in order for him to become president. So it looks as if Zelensky is trying to clean up the corruption in Ukraine ahead of the, the EU summit on Friday. That seems pretty obvious, right? Uh, I think that's a pretty fair reading. I'm not sure if it's quite as cynically timed um, as uh, you suggest. I mean, most of the Ukrainians that I speak to and work with, you know, I've been fo following like developments uh, professionally, I guess, over the last year or so, but also with an eye to sort of working for political change. 
in Ukraine as well. But most of the people I talk to seem pretty positive about this anti-corruption um, uh, drive. Um, as you say, you know, it's, it's Zelensky turning on a one-time benefactor and that, that looks at the outset um, outwardly pretty pretty encouraging. So, so I think this is wars are often um, moments where states can clean up their act, can build a stronger public authority, uh, can strengthen their democracy because the whole of society hopefully will be united behind protecting the country. So it's not surprising that we're seeing this, but I think overall it probably is quite encouraging. Well, according to Transparency International in 2021, Ukraine was the second most corrupt country in Europe, uh, followed by Russia being the most corrupt. And of course, the issue of corruption is one of the excuses that the pro-Putin lobby over here, uh, which is the far-right bloc in the new House of Representatives, the so-called Freedom Caucus, along with Fox News' leading personality, uh, if you could call him that, Tucker Carlson, who argue against the U.S. supplying arms and money to Ukraine. And that movement could grow and threaten the Biden administration's efforts to keep Ukraine going, both economically and militarily, under this enormous assault from Russia. So corruption is an incredibly important issue. There's no evidence that any of the money that the U.S., or that NATO countries have given Ukraine has been uh, embezzled. Uh, but, but at least the, the headlines today indicate that there are still problems in Ukraine. What's your prognosis oh, well, on that? Yeah, I don't think anyone would deny that there was a, there's corruption problems in Ukraine. As you say, Transparency International has pointed it out. It's been a long-standing concern of Ukrainians, uh, both Joe blogs on the street. Sorry, that's a very English term, but the ordinary working class Joe, if you like, are on the street um, and, uh, and, and activists and campaigners around corruption in Ukraine. Ukraine has a hugely vibrant uh, civil society uh, uh, movement and organizations, and they've done a lot of work in trying to improve and clean up. Ukrainian politics, especially in the period following the Maidan um, protests and political change of 2014 and after. So, so, so I think you know everyone everyone sees corruption as a, as a big big issue uh, for Ukraine. Recognizing it as an issue doesn't mean that it becomes really easy to tackle because of the nature of corruption. I mean, it's people don't necessarily advertise it, although some of the figures. Um, the, or details that have been reported about people driving absurdly expensive cars and things do seem to be pretty pretty foolish and pretty um, pretty open about it. But but nonetheless, it takes place in the shadows, and that does make it difficult to tackle. Uh, so I think these changes, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, will support the development of a, a stronger public authority in Ukraine that can really help the state clean up its act so that the resources that uh, Ukraine is both raising domestically uh, and from international um, donors to support its democratic resistance are going to exactly where they're intended and not being wasted. And as you suggest, that's important, not just for uh, Ukraine's 
moral economy, if you like, uh, for the, the belief in the citizens that they that the system is representing them and continues to deserve their support. Well, in a way, you could argue, surely, Luke, that it's amazing that Ukraine has an economy, given that it's at war and the Russians are absolutely destroying the country. They're just flattening towns and villages and cities indiscriminately and going after vital infrastructure. The fact that they still keep operating and paying salaries, I find extraordinary. I think that's a really important point. And although, as you've suggested at the beginning, in the American prospect, I've been critical of aspects of the government's um, program, um, we should recognize crucially that Ukraine is showing incredible um, resilience. Uh, you know, you, you can find on social media these amazing stories of businesses and individuals that are going out of their way to continue to function despite the horrendous um, attack on them uh, and the horrendous act of uh, Russian aggression. You know, people raising humanitarian funds to expand and develop um, bomb shelters in, in schools on an extremely large scale, people organizing civic campaigns to actually pay for the Ukrainian military to be able to buy weapons. I mean, this is happening um, in Ukraine. So there's a tremendous amount of civic spirit and societal resilience. And also on a, on a practical level, the impact of the war um, macroeconomically is very, very uneven. So generally speaking, those areas that have had the most uh, serious economic contraction are those, of course, closest to the front line where the fighting is taking place. And those areas that and sectors that are able to reorganize themselves um, effectively, like, for example, the information technology and communication sector, is actually seems to be functioning reasonably well. And Ukraine actually has quite a strong IT sector. And so it's steel, steel, the steel industry that's much closer to uh, the front line has seen this huge contraction, but that's not the whole picture in the wider economy. And that means that Ukraine's success in the war has actually helped its economy. It has a direct impact because where the Ukrainian military is able to ensure the security of the local population by pushing out the Russian invader, economic activity has restarted. So it's really important that even those of us who are critical recognize that tremendous resilience. So, Luke, I imagine in the talks that are, will be taking place on Friday with the Ukrainian officials and Zelensky and, and Ursula von Leyen of the EU and Joseph Perel and also Michelle as well, they're obviously going to be talking about the issues that you brought up in your article at the American Prospect. I mean, for example, the taxing system is not progressive uh, at all. It's basically a kind of sales tax, which, of course, the Republicans now in the House are, are also trying to put forward here in the United States, which is a regressive tax. So would they be talking about more progressive taxes? In other words, starting to tax the billionaires? Well, I don't know exactly what the European um, Commission will be saying to them, of course. And the, um, the European Union, the beast that it is, 
um, it is a very uh, plural body, of course. You know, you get lot. There are lots of different national governments with lots of different opinions on things, and that's why politics is always a bit of a compromise. But what I would say is that in general, in the inter- international financial organisations like the International Monetary Fund, like the World Bank, um, one uh, one time in history, uh, ten, ten, not that long ago, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago would have been pushing some of the really hardline free market uh, Republican Party um, policies that you've mentioned. At the moment, um, that's the paradigm has shifted quite a bit. The thinking has shifted quite a bit globally. So even in advance of this full scale Russian invasion, the International Monetary Fund was actually publicly saying to Ukraine, well, we think actually your tax system is really weak on what they call progressivity, i.e. it's a flat tax system, it's not progressive enough. And and the World Bank was saying there's a real case for countries that are in Ukraine's position, relatively middle income, but on the poorer end of being a middle income um, country, should really be looking at raising more taxes in order to develop efficient, well, um, well-resourced public services. And that's a really important part of their economic development. And of course, you in the United States know this better than anyone because the Biden administration is uh, leaps and bounds different in economic terms from the Obama administration, never mind the Clinton administration of the 1990s. Thinking has really moved on. And I think it's moved on because there are a series of shocks that are happening to the economy, whether that's climate change whether that's COVID-19 or whether that's markets just not functioning very well, like we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. And all of those shocks pose the need for a very large state intervention. They pose the need for states to be really active in protecting the welfare of their citizens. So yes, in the US Republican Party, there are certainly still people pushing, of course, as you know better than I, this um, ideological small state agenda, I do feel that we can tentatively say that history is moving against those people. So what about all of the frozen funds of Russia's in European banks? There's obviously even more frozen funds here in New York's Fed. My understanding is it's something in Europe, you know, about half a trillion dollars. Could that money be used to reconstruct Ukraine. I mean, obviously, if there's ever to be a peace deal, Russia has to address the enormous uh, destruction it's wrought on Ukraine, and obviously they won't want to pony up anything. So what's your sense of, uh, I mean, assuming, you know, there's a great deal of concern that this new offensive that Russia's planning, and they may it may happen sooner than later, could be very damaging to the Ukrainians who are basically holding on against a you know a much more powerful foe with much more resources arms and personnel so it's not entirely clear and the Europeans for some reason or other along with the US have been always been slow in delivering arms so at the very best you could expect the Ukrainians to hold in the next offensive but at a great price so it's not a good picture militarily but economically, it's even worse. So uh, what's your sense about whether or not all of the Russia's frozen funds in European banks could be used to reconstruct Ukraine? 
I think the answer, the short answer to that is yes, uh, certainly, potentially. The concern that I think um, inter- really, the really important international actors that have confiscated the money, the wealthy Western states, essentially, and their central banks in some cases, um, the, the reason that they're cautious about it, I think, is because, and for good on good grounds, is that, well, look, we have to be a bit careful here because we don't want to set a very bad precedent um, that then states globally start engaging in uh, large-scale asset seizures, potentially, say, of Western um, assets or Western-aligned individuals. And so uh, this process of it happening, and I think it should happen, simply has to be legally robust. And that, that points to it, I think, I think, and this is just my personal view, and I might be wrong, I'm not strongly held to this position, I think that that points it to it being a longer-term um, process rather than what you're suggesting, which is it's an immediate remedy, it's an immediate um, solution. And so I agree also with the, what you went on to say, which is the, the second point that, well, Ukraine has had this tremendous military success on the battlefield in this David and Goliath con- contest at the moment. And um, David is, is, is essentially winning the war. Russian progress has been relatively on a small scale, pretty minimal, and they've had massive setbacks and Ukrainian advances have been really significant. But that shouldn't lead us to be sanguine about the potentials going forward, both on the battlefield and in terms of the economic situation in Ukraine. Because the situation for Ukrainian citizens economically at the moment, I'm afraid to say, is much much, much, much worse than it is for Russian citizens, despite the effect of uh, Western sanctions. So there, there are risks ahead facing Ukraine. And then the question becomes, how does Ukraine effectively mitigate those risks so that it can make further progress in this David and Goliath battle? But just in the last couple of minutes, there's also the enormous number of Ukrainian refugees, right? I don't know what percentage of the population have had had to flee the country, but that's both a burden on neighbouring European countries as well as an enormous economic deficit. If you lose, first of all, you've got most of your you know, fighting age men are in the war, so you've always got some real labour shortages as well. Well, uh, well I don't think that European states will um, be forcing anyone to leave, and I certainly hope they won't. But I also don't expect it uh, to happen. I'm, I'm fairly, I'm fairly uh, confident um, on that. Of course, if there, if there isn't, and we hope there is eventually an end to the war that's on the terms that Ukraine uh, wants, and that Russia suffers in one form or another a defeat on its its appalling imperialist um, invasion. Of course, that will be a key part of Ukraine's recovery will be the return of that uh, displaced population. And not only the displaced population overseas in European countries, um, but also uh, the displaced population internally returning from uh, Kiev and the west of the, of the west of the country, cities like Lviv, uh, and moving back to uh, their homes and, uh, and their, their towns and villages 
um, in in eastern Ukraine. So I think that will be critical to 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 the recovery. What happens to um, the displaced uh, population? But at the moment, you would have to say in Europe the situation is not the same as the 2015 uh, refugee crisis. The uh, European far right, which are very strong, I mean they're in power in some countries. In 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 Poland, uh, there's a far right. Their government indeed, but on the Ukrainian refugee question, they seem to be uh, seem to be pretty uh, okay with the Ukrainian refugees uh, staying, and that's welcome. Um, there are reasons for that, obviously. I mean, the Ukrainian refugees are are, are for to on a very large measure white refugees, so I'm not saying it's not not problematic that difference, but it is really important that European states have realised that we can actually we can cope, we can manage it, we can have a large influx of uh, refugees fleeing a war and, and, and the world, uh, the, the ceiling isn't going to fall in, it's going to be all right. Our societies have the resilience um, to, to certainly uh, support people who are fleeing. So, so overall on that, I think I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty positive. And, uh, and yes, in terms of Ukraine's future recovery, and what Ukraine really needs to be thinking about right now is yes to the anti-corruption um, drive, building really strong public institutions that are able to de- defend the public interest. But to do that effectively, you need to give those institutions resources. That means more taxation of the local population. Hopefully aid will come, but the priority has to be higher and progressive taxes, wealth taxes, of the domestic population. And that will give Ukraine the resources in order to fight the war today with the help of international donors. But crucially, it also points to the kind of state uh, that Ukraine wants to build in the future, a state that has solid public services, good social infrastructure, and is able to really protect the interests of its citizens. Well, Luke Cooper, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Luke Cooper, who's in the UK, where he's an Associate Professional Research Fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Director of Peace Reps Ukraine Program, previously a visiting fellow on the Europe's Future Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He runs the Another Europe is Possible podcast with Zoe Williams of The Guardian and is the author of Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy. He also has an article at the American Prospect, Ukraine's Neoliberal War Mobilization, Low Taxes, Privatization, and Pared Back Labor Protections Could Undermine Ukraine's Fight Against Russian Aggression. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the deal struck by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and President Bong Bong Marcos for what the U.S. is calling spaces, not bases, in the Philippines.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, June Dreyer, who's a professor of political science at the University of Miami, specializing in international relations, Asian Pacific political and economic systems, Chinese government and foreign policy, and U.S. defense policy. She was the Asia advisor to the chief of naval operations and is the author of China's Political System, Modernization and Tradition. Welcome to Background Briefing, June Dreyer. Nice to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, June. And the Chinese government is expressing annoyance at the United States because a deal was just struck between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the new president of the Philippines, uh, Marcos, of course, the son of the former disgraced dictator. So something's happened in the Philippines to change their mind in terms of U.S. bases. I mean, it looks as if these new bases will be quite, one of them will be within 90 miles of Taiwan, Kayagan, on the most northern island of the Philippine Peninsula. So what is behind this change from Duterte, the Duterte administration, to the new Marcos administration? Uh, a, a, a very profound difference in, in the opinion of what's going on, because after all, Duterte's predecessor was also uh, concerned with the Chinese and, and their, uh, she say, encroachment on Philippine territory. And it's only when Duterte comes to power that he says to the Chinese, well, we don't need to worry about this. Um, ruling by the international, the permanent court of op- of ar- arbitration on uh, the South China Sea, and we can all be friends and please build us railroads and so on. And I think what had happened is uh, the the perception, at least among a lot of Filipinos, is that the Duterte administration had gone quite a bit too far in terms of friendship with the Chinese. And there is also the encroachment of the Chinese on Second Thomas and the where is this all going to end kind of thing. Well, the Chinese built a base on Mischief Reef, which is way inside the Philippines' own exclusion economic zone. Mm-hmm. And surely that must have gotten the attention of the Philippine authorities. I believe Philippine fishermen are furious. I mean, the government mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be standing up for its own people and its own territory. Well, certainly Duterte did not. And he, I think, thought he could make do with braggadocio and swagger. And it didn't really work out well. But on the other hand, he has a daughter coming along and who seems to share her father's opinions so this could be a bad deal for the United States in that they come in and they develop these areas, which they have said are spaces, not bases. And then along comes another election and another Duterte or someone who shares Rodrigo Duterte's opinions comes in and is able to utilize what the United States taxpayer has paid for. And, of course, given the uh, General Minahan's pronouncement that we could expect an attack as, as early as 2025, this takes on an added salience. Well, let's talk about the U.S. General's remarks, which, of course, got a lot of attention. Uh, he was referring to Taiwan, was he not? And he thought 
uh, in a few years' time there'd be a war over Taiwan? Yes, he was definitely referring to Taiwan, yes. And has there been any any follow-up from the Pentagon? Was he talking out of, out of school? Uh, not that I have noticed. Was there any follow-up? And generals are usually very, very careful about this, and they do not speak out until after they are retired. Right. No, I've so noticed I, that. <laughs> uh, I, I think he, he, since he didn't offer to retire and since he was not relieved of command, <laughs> I can only assume that he did this with, uh, with uh, at least the tacit consent of higher authorities. But it's my understanding, June Dry, that the, most of the objection in the Philippines to the idea of the U.S. bases coming back goes back to the history of uh, the big base in Subic Bay and the extent to which there was a kind of red light district nearby and the sex trade, etc. And that's what the, <laughs> that's what the uh, Philippine left is, is complaining about, and they were demonstrating uh, today. As as if there were no sex trade in the Philippines without the United States, right? Right. And the same for, uh, I guess, uh, for Thailand as well. Uh, yeah. And uh, let us not forget that the ouster of the United States from those bases was done by one vote in the Filipino Senate. One vote. Mm. And so... As with any situation with bases, there are winners and losers, and the proprietors of the gin mills and the brothels and the clothing stores that cater to the United States GIs, they were very unhappy to see the United States leave. So when the U.S. talks about spaces, not bases, what are they going to build? There's apparently... Not just Cagayan that I mentioned, yeah. which is the northernmost mm-hmm. island, but Zambales, Palawan, and Isabella as well. The closest one to Taiwan makes obviously sense. It's 90 miles away. But what are they going to build there? Well, uh, as as I understand it, they're not going to build, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, it, they, they will have the use of the space. They will not build a base. But let's see what they actually do. I mean... So far, I have not seen any spelling out of content on what spaces, not bases, means. Hmm. Well, you'd think that at least you'd have a dock and an airport, wouldn't you? I mean, there are apparently 200,000 Filipinos living in Taiwan. So what's the relationship between the Philippines and Taiwan? Obviously, they have, they have... They recognize China, so they have that same dance that the U.S. has over Taiwan. But how do you see that relationship? I, I see it purely in monetary terms. Mm-hmm. There are jobs for Filipinos in Taiwan. They are going there for the jobs. I don't see any particular allegiance or emotional connection going with it. And so, this is very different. See, this is very different from Japan, where you have an emotional connection between Taiwan and Japan as well as financial connections. Well, you mean as a former colonial power? Well, Japanese culture is very, very well thought of in Japan. Japanese food is very well thought of. 
uh, little Japanese kids, uh, little Taiwanese kids wear Mickey House clothing, things mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. so it's it's not just a former colonial power because, after all, the Koreans hate the Japanese, and they were a former colony of Japan as well. But the Taiwanese don't. Is that what you're saying? And the Taiwanese remember them fondly. Really? Huh. Yes. Well, the U.S. also has a base in Okinawa to the north. So it does look as if they're getting ready to be closer to Taiwan in case something happens, right? Well, we are also being urged to leave Okinawa. And this is caught up, I don't know how much time you have to discuss Japanese politics, but most of the U.S. bases in Japan are on Okinawa. And the Okinawans have a fraught relationship with the Japanese who look down on them. And the Okinawans say, why do we have to put up with the Americans, or I should say some Okinawans say, why do we have to put up with the Americans? They are, uh, their planes are noisy. There is the occasional American soldier or service person who does something he or she should not, generally a he. And uh, there is a big incident, and it has to be calmed down. If the Americans weren't here, we wouldn't hear their noisy airplanes. We wouldn't have their their, uh, picadillos, sometimes which are more serious than picadillos, and that sort of thing. So the... A number of Okinawans would like to see the United States abandon its bases. And the United States has said, look, guys, we really need these bases because we can remove our troops to Guam, but it's going to be further away in terms of the defense of Japan. And this makes a lot of sense if you are a Japanese and if you're an Okinawan You don't want to talk about it or some kind of Okinawans because not all the Okinawans agree. But the Chinese government is working through its united front to energize the anti-base sentiment in Okinawa. And by the way, the Okinawans also say we we want the Japanese to leave, you know, the real Japanese, (laughs) because they are Japanese citizens as well. But there's so little territory in Okinawa, and a lot of the bases take up a lot of space, don't they? Well, the Okinawa is actually a very large island, mm. but uh, it, particularly if you are a landowner, you can perhaps see other uses for the base, for, for, the, for the land, tourism perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, so, no, Okinawa is a big island. <laughs> right. Well, is there something similar going on in the Philippines or the demonstration by left-wing groups about U.S. military presence is based upon what? Uh, Just because it's never fun to have foreigners in your country. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, China through its united fronts will take advantage of this. I don't think it created it, but will certainly take advantage of it. But isn't there a feeling underway in the neighborhood, not just in the Philippines, but in Thailand and in, in Vietnam, and 
uh, Malaysia, etc., they're, they're, they're concerned about the Chinese. I mean, this wolf warrior diplomacy uh, seems to have backfired, which Chinese being aggressive and somewhat imperialistic in the neighborhood have turned a lot of these countries against them or at least made them a little more concerned about protecting themselves. Isn't that underway? Uh, it is and it isn't because mm-hmm. these situations blow hot and cold. And you saw Penny Wong, the Australian foreign minister, uh, and Australia has suffered worse from wolf warrior diplomacy than any other country. And uh, yet she is making nice with the Chinese again. And I can see these other countries doing the same. Well, it it makes sense to make nice, but on the other hand, you don't just sort of give up your territory as the as the, the Filipinos have done in terms of the Chinese building bases in their uh, economic exclusion zone. I mean... I just that, wonder how much the average Filipino is concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Japan is a very wealthy country, and, but the average Filipino lives very close to the economic margin and has other things to worry about. Mm-hmm than the loss of some islands that he or she may never even have heard of? Well, it is obviously something that it's irritating the Chinese. Uh, Their newspapers are basically talking about American. The Global Times accuses the U.S. of setting a trap for the Philippines, trying to push the Philippines to the front lines of a confrontation with China. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, they have. This is their mantra, and they have also done that with Japan, and uh, presented the Japanese prime minister as a puppet with the strings being pulled by a very long-nosed Uncle Sam, and uh, then they have done the same with Taiwan. The United States wants to put Taiwan in the middle of a proxy war between it and China, but not to worry, China will win. Well, what happens if Russia wins in Ukraine? That's one of the things that uh, a lot of analysts suggest, that China is somewhat wary of what's happening in Ukraine. And if Ukraine were to fall to Russia, then maybe they would be more emboldened to take Taiwan. But what's your reading on that? Uh, My reading is that this is a ridiculous argument because Russia has already lost in Ukraine. It was supposed to take a week to roll over and install a puppet government. That hasn't happened. Yeah, but but Putin's poised for another offensive. So, you know, doesn't he have... Is he going to to force Zelensky to resign? Well, they're having a hell of a time fighting them now. But if if he puts another 200 or 500,000 Russian bodies into the fight, you know... How well are these Russian bodies fighting well, not that not well very so well, far, apparently. But, yeah, but, you know, we don't know the the extent of Ukrainian casualties. And the West just keeps promising weapons, but they're very slow in delivering them. So I don't that think... That is true. I don't think Zelensky's feeling comfortable at the moment. Oh, I don't think Zelensky has ever felt comfortable. He's too intelligent for that. But uh, I also don't think Russia is going to, quote, win. And I suppose perhaps we should have a discussion on what winning means. Does Ukraine disappear into Russia 
the way Belarus pretty much has? Is that what winning is? I don't think that's going to happen. I think the best that Putin could hope for at this point is if the uh, the Russians maintain control over Donetsk and a few other areas. But back to Taiwan, which is the concern that that China could sort of take advantage of this situation and move against Taiwan. And I mean, we have this new phenomenon now in geopolitics. We had mutually assured destruction during the Cold War where nuclear powers were restrained. But now Putin has changed the paradigm where he is using nuclear threats as a shield behind which he conducts a conventional war. And mm-hmm. the concern is that China could do the same attack Taiwan in a conventional way and the U.S. would be restrained from using nuclear weapons because of China's nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you definitely have articulated a worst-case scenario. I just strongly doubt it's ever going to come to that. And, uh, and uh, whether, I don't know whether you've noticed, but Jens Stoltenberg has visited Tokyo did you happen to notice that? Yes, the NATO leader, right? Uh, NATO Secretary General, Sec- yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And uh, clearly, Japan cannot be geographically, at least, a member of NATO. And yet you see NATO lining up with Japan. Uh, in August... Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan, became the first Japanese Prime Minister ever, to my knowledge, to visit, uh, to take part in a NATO meeting. What message does that send to the Chinese? It's a scary one. And right now, they are, the Chinese are saying, it doesn't mean a thing, it's just symbolic. Right, but just in closing, June, are they giving up on their ambitions to take over Taiwan one way or the other? Well, if you read what Stoltenberg was saying in Japan, he was saying that it's important to stand together against, quote, a Taiwan contingency. Mm -hmm. So he is lining up NATO there on the side of Taiwan. I see. Well, I thank you for joining us. It's uh, obviously what we're talking about. It's not comforting in the sense that uh, both sides are upping the ante one way or the other. This is not... Well, it is absolutely certain they are upping the ante, but I don't see this as as fraught with difficulties as you seem to. Well, but you, we talked about the American general who said we're going to go to war in a couple of years. So that, that... No, 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 no. Read what he said again. He is talking about the possibility. There's, there's a big difference there. Uh-huh. And, and what he might be doing is signaling, saying to the Chinese, we're, 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 we're prepared for you, or we know what you're doing and you better understand that we're not going to stand by and do nothing. So do not, and he never said they're going to. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake. Right. Uh, well, he said it's possible. You just said it's possible as opposed yes. to inevitable. Um, well, there's a big difference between those two <laughs> states, surely. I agree. Right? 
and I'm hoping for the former, not the latter. So I thank you for joining us. Okay, always a pleasure to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with June Dreyer, who's a professor of political science at the University of Miami, specializing in international relations, Asian-Pacific political and economic systems, Chinese government and foreign policy, and U.S. defense policy. She was the Asia advisor to the chief of naval operations and is the author of China's Political System, Modernization and Tradition. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.